Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today we're talking with Thomas Grace about his book, Kent State, Death and Descent in the Long Sixties. Tom, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. In, I, I'm a native of Syracuse, New York. I was born in 1950, the oldest of four children. Both of my parents are college educated, although they uh, both came from working class backgrounds. Uh, my father's probably more impoverished than my mother's. They both experienced the Depression growing up. That had quite an impact on their um, political loyalties, particularly my father's. Uh, he was an ardent New Dealer. And as the oldest of four children, I seem to have inherited uh, many of his beliefs. Um, which he almost taught by um, by rote learning. Um, so I was very much my father's son. Um, when it came time for me to consider colleges, uh, I became familiar with Kent State because my father had um, hired a man who had recently graduated from Kent State. My father at that time was a social work administrator working for the state of New York. And uh, he had gone to Kent State. So that put the school on my radar. And it was one of uh, four um, colleges or universities that I had applied to. Um, and of the public universities, uh, I was accepted at all of the schools that I applied. And of the public universities, it was the closest to uh, our Syracuse, New York home, even though it was still a good six hours distance um, on the New York State Thruway and Interstate 90. Uh, what um, further attracted me to Kent was the school's history department and its rich offerings of um, courses in American history, which um, became um, one of my two majors while I was a student there, the other being political science. So, because that's one of the, and I think that uh, that bu- your biography is very important in terms of this book, because while what you're writing is not a memoir per se, one of the things that I was struck by as I was reading it was how there's such a rich familiarity with Kent State during this period in your book. And I think it's one of the things that uh, really distinguishes it in terms of what your what your approach is. Uh, had Was this a book that you had been uh, planning to write for a long period of time, or is this a book that you decided to write more recently? Well, without getting too deep into the weeds, it was a book actually that I never intended to write. Uh, it came about largely by chance. I met the man who became the editor of the book at the Organization of American Historians annual meeting in 1990, I believe. And it was a a chance meeting. Um, I stopped at the press table book to buy uh, the biography of John Brown that was written by um, Stephen Oates, I believe, to purge this land with blood. Um, Brown lived in Kent for a time when, when the community was called Franklin Mills, Ohio. 
and um, Clark, um, in the course of about a 45-minute discussion, I had not um, discovered, because I, I decided to share it with him eventually, that I had been among the students who was wounded at Kent State, and Clark was a Cleveland native who had gone to Kenyon, and he, he's an acquisitions editor, so of course he's at the conference trying to find uh, people with existing manuscripts or ones that might um, be of interest to the reading public um, and to academic audiences. So he he pitched the idea actually um, there. I had just um, graduated from the University of Buffalo at the time with an MA with no intention of going on to obtain a PhD. And it took another five years before I decided to, um, and by that time I had re-enrolled in um, at the University of Buffalo in the doctor, doctoral program. And um, by after about five years, I decided that uh, I would switch switch my focus and indeed um, my centuries because I had uh, previously been studying the American Civil War. That's been a lifelong um, passion of mine, and um, do a study of Kent State, and that's how it came about. Wow! So you've been working on this book for a long period of time. Yes, the dissertation um, covered, uh, I did the work, um, the research and writing of that between 1999 and 2003. That only covered the years between 1958 and 1964. And then I retired from an earlier career in 2005, began some adjunct teaching, and um, expanded and revised the um, initial dissertation to take the story up through January of 1973, which is when the Paris Peace Accords were signed. Um, So the book winds up covering a period, um, a fairly long period of historical time from 1958 to January of 1973. And I would say all in all, um, I probably spent about 10 years on the writing and and research Took a, it takes a long time, of course. Um, those who've written um, and had published um, academic press books know that it takes a long time to get them through um, to publication. My manuscript was actually um, turned in, I believe, in 2010. It wasn't published until 2000, early 2016. So it's the better part of five or six years uh, before, from the time that it was submitted till it was published. I was wondering if you could explain uh, to us why you went all the way back to the late 1950s. How does that inform our understanding of what happened at Kent State in 1970? Well, first of all, I had an outsider's perspective on on Kent, Ohio. Uh, Arriving there in of 1968, um, there were were a growing number of -of out-of-state students, but still in all, the majority of my classmates were native Ohioans. And I noticed a number of things about Ohio um, that were that was somewhat different from my um, own community. First of all, um, Kent and Portage County the county in which Kent is located in, was still fairly small and largely rural in 1968. But the students um, that I 
got to, or came to know at Kent State, they often came from large industrial cities such as Cleveland or Akron or the city of Barberton, where my roommate was from. Um, his name was Alan Cantfora, and his photo was actually on the cover of the book. Um, others were from Canton and Maslin and Youngstown and places like that. Um, so they were largely the sons and, in some cases, the daughters of um, of working-class um, people. Um, and often, um, in fact, usually the first in their families to go to college. So we went to school in a, in a small, rural, and fairly conservative town, but the students that um, were drawn to Kent State <clears throat> tended to come from these industrial cities. Um, or increasingly from um, out of out of excuse <clears throat> excuse me out of state locales um, such as myself, and we were able to uh, travel back and forth um, to Kent State because of the development of the inter interstate highway uh, systems, um, which um, you know gr greatly reduced the amount of travel time that someone would have to spend um, going back and forth to school for school breaks in, in the summertime and all. So um, I began to think about how um, that tension, that small town, um, big city um, tension that was present in Kent um, may have informed um, this, the mentality of the students that went to school there. And as I learned, many of these kids um, came from unionized families. Um, and as I got more involved in the political life of the campus, I began to realize that you know, some of the kids came from old left families. By, by that, I mean um, um, their parents had been members of the Communist Party, or uh, they may have been in a socialist club. If their parents went to college, they may have been in a socialist club when they... Um, when, when their parents were growing up. Um, and there were a variety of these influences that helped shape the outlook of the students. Um, and that showed, to me at any rate, that there was a certain amount of political continuity between what many historians and political scientists refer to as, as the New Deal era or the New Deal order and the 1960s student protesters. And this type of outlook um, is, is um, shared by some historians, but generally um, people who study the era tend to focus on the generation gap and the tension between young people and their parents. Um, and while that was undeniable, particularly in the cultural realm, in the political realm at Kent State, um, that was far less apparent. And indeed, one can see that there was a fair amount of continuity um, in, in, the, in the shared belief systems between um, the uh, generation um, um, era um, parents and the baby boom and their baby boom offspring. That idea of continuity also plays out in another aspect of your uh, book in the early chapters, which is the continuity between the protests, the activism that you describe in the late sixties up to 1970. And then this, uh, period of, of activism that predated you, but was tied to the civil rights movement. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the culture of activism in Kent State 
prior to uh, the Vietnam War and, and, and how that contributed to the culture that you uh, experienced when you arrived there? Yes, I, I can do that. Um, first of all, just uh, maybe a quick word on on the town of Kent because uh, that that impacted the growth of the movement in in, in its own perhaps paradoxical way. Um, the the town of Kent, which had been called Franklin Mills um, up until the time of the Civil War, and then it was renamed Kent um, in honor of a man who brought the railroad. Um, to um, Franklin Mills in 1863. His name was Marvin Kent. Um, was a fairly conservative place um, that really didn't uh, change its character all that much until probably around the turn of the last century, from the 19th to the 20th century. And in 1910, um, the town landed um, the college, which was then a normal school. Um, but the town itself was beginning to change as well because of an influx, not a large one, but um, an influx of um, southern migrants, most of whom were African-American, and um, the immigration um, influx of Italian-Americans um, into the town. And that, of course, was all occurring at the um, time of the last century. But 50 years later, that, that um, really hadn't changed Kent all that much because I remember um, when I was looking at an interview um, that was done with a man by the name of John Carson, um, he described the town of Kent in 1960 as being, um, I think he called it a, a segment segmented community. Um, in other words, um, the, these groups still lived apart from one another. And while that doesn't make Kent unique, um, it, it did um, indicate that, um, from my point of view, that the town itself was um, fairly inhospitable to um, African Americans. Um, in, um, in the late, oh, and, and one other thing I, I probably should add here, that the universities, um, Greeks, fraternities, and sororities also reflected this as well because they had racial covenants that prevented um, them from having African-American members. So even before um, there was um, some labor protest um, or, or students supporting um, unions that were fighting uh, a right-to-work amendment in 1958 and dealing um, actively with um, the city's um, segregated patterns, there, were al there was already um, a group uh, that had styled themselves the Macedonians. And Carl Oglesby, who um, some listeners and readers will know as, I think, the third or fourth president of the Students for Democratic Society, which was a radical uh, anti-war organization that formed on college campuses in 1960 and 61 first at the University of Michigan. Um, Carl Oglesby was a student at Kent State and he was um, part of this group called the Macedonians. And they had um, styled themselves that because the Macedonians of old had um, opposed the Greeks in many wars. <laughs> and from their point of view, the uh, Macedonians now are going to take on the Greek fraternity and sorority system. Uh, and in some in um, some of the students who there were maybe fifteen or twenty people in this friendship circle, and um, some of the students um, who were part of this um, friendship 
network um, came from all left families and actually read um, had the, the daily worker delivered to them every day or slipped under their door. Um, but the research uh, that I did shows that um, it was Kent's segregated housing patterns and the discriminatory practices in terms of public accommodations that produced the first real protest in town and then later on the campus. Um, blacks um, who lived in Kent um, could not use the university pool, but that was open to white residents of Kent. Uh, restaurants and bars did not often serve African Americans, um, while some of the machine shops in Kent did not employ blacks. And um, a friend of mine who um, I didn't interview for the book, um, but um, he told me about this later. Um, when he grew up in Kent in the 1950s, he recalled that when he needed clothing, um, that his mother had to take him um, shopping to um, the more distant city of Akron because the stores in Kent would not allow blacks to try on clothing to determine if the um, articles fit properly. So, you, so uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was gonna no say, please. So, so you're talking about how there are these issues which we associate with the early 60s that definitely left an imprint upon uh, the Kent State community and how you see uh, a, a small group of students. And you describe in the book sometimes how they would uh, undertake these protests very hesitantly. This wasn't uh, – you know, this wasn't, say, New York City. They were very well aware of this, about how it was this very you know, brave in some ways, uh, in many ways, uh, effort that they're taking to try to affect change in a, you know, in this very conservative uh, town, which is uh, really in many ways uh, hasn't been fully transformed by this rapidly expanding university in their midst. Exactly. It was an inhospitable environment. But what happened was that as sympathetic whites, at least some sympathetic whites, um, saw what their African-American college classmates were experiencing, um, protests began to ensue. So... Um, the, the town's, for, for example, the town's Woolworth store was picketed in Kent after the southern sit-ins um, of, of the same store swept much of the nation in 1960. And then in October of 1960, a dozen or so Kent students held a sit-in of their own. Uh, it was a place called the, then it was called the Corner Bar, it was um, now known as the Loft, um, that refused to serve blacks. And that was successful. Uh, it slowly led to change and acceptance of African Americans being served in Kent's establishments. And then um, a year later, and this was in 1961, um, some of the um, same students who were involved in these um, uh, protests and the one sit-in were um, emboldened enough to challenge the, what they saw as the university's complicity with segregated off-campus housing practices. Um, and the president of Kent State at the time, a man by the name of George Bowman, uh, he, he dug his heels in, in the face of these protests, but he finally relented when, um, when sympathetic faculty weighed in on behalf of the students. And this part of the story is a bit murky um, in terms of what happened, but apparently the state uh, NAACP um, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People um, apparently threatened the university with a lawsuit. 
And um, all, all of this occurred, by the way, against the backdrop of Russian educators visiting the campus, which provided pr um, pressure or placed pressure on the university because they didn't want to be embarrassed by these racial practices at a time that professors from the Soviet Union were meeting with their counterparts at Kent State. Because after all, the United States was... Um, trying to present um, a face um, to, the, to the world that they were a beacon of freedom, while at the same time the Soviet Union was taking advantage of these discriminatory practices that were so widespread uh, and, and indeed embedded in many places in the United States um, and, and pointing to the hypocrisy of the United States uh, claiming that they were a beacon of freedom while these practices were so widespread in the country. Uh, that's one of the things you do in your book that I think really helps to set everything in context, which is you don't just describe the, the activist uh, groups and their causes, but you also describe there were conservative students as well who counter-protested and how the faculty were oftentimes, and administration were uh, oftentimes uh, you know, divided or in positions where they were having to mediate between these contesting groups and dealing with all these various interests. It really... It really does seem to demonstrate how this very contentious or, 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 or very uh, fraught and, 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 and sometimes in, in some respects for the administrators, perilous environment existed even before the Vietnam War. The challenges of adapting to change while at the same time acknowledging that not everyone is, is, is in favor of, of, of doing this. Exactly. And I, I might add here that... Um, Kent's president, George Bowman, he remained in his position um, for, until 1963, and then the vice president um, of the university was, was named the heir, the heir apparent, um, and uh, he, uh, his name was Robert White. And during the course, I, uh, here, here's where writing um, a book about um, an experience that one um, had participated in um, gets a little tricky. Uh, at one time, um, I was a plaintiff in a civil lawsuit against the Ohio National Guard and um, President White, um, and I did not care for him at all as a result of um, his, his stewardship or lack thereof of Kent State University. But I must say that during the course of my research, I gained a newfound um, measure of sympathy for the position that he was in. Because in many, well, well he definitely was guilty of a failure in leadership. I also felt that he was in a no-win position because if he was um, seen as coddling um, student protesters, then he had an he experienced an avalanche of criticism from the right. Um, whereas if he failed to act quickly um, to address um, matters of racial discrimination, he would be, he was um, you know soundly criticized um, on the political left and from the African American community. Um, and all the while, he's trying to balance all this with uh, by keeping um, the governor of the state from getting too involved in the um, in the university in the university's internal affairs, um, like mo like most. Um, people who run an organization, they'd like to be left to run that on their own without having to um, 
deal with what they regard as a lot of intrusion. And you describe how uh, during this period, the state began to establish greater uh, control over the universities with the establishment of the Board of Regents. So this is all happening at a time when the state, and you're talking about, you know, a very formidable figure, the former John Rhodes, who is coming in and, and not only is the state exerting more influence, but Rhodes is perfectly willing to use politics and and to maybe this is a little bit harsh too harsh of a phrase exploit the situation for uh his own uh political goals exactly and of course um that that very exploitation was um uh, very much in evidence um in may of 1970 but we can perhaps get to that a little later in the course of the discussion i, I was wondering if you could talk about now how the vietnam war uh, comes into play and how it changes the culture in the mid 1960s. Because as you've demonstrated, as you've explained, the focus initially is more upon civil rights. It's more upon these other issues that are more that are very domestically focused. There is an international element in terms of the Cold War, but it is not as large of an element as the Vietnam War comes in terms of foreign policy considerations. When does that shift begin, and how? Deep and broad is it in 65, 66, 67? Well, um, first of all, the, the 60s can uh, often be uh, best understood as a series of cascading movements. And this was true not only of Kent State, but I think it was true of many campuses um, throughout the country. Um, because while the early... Um, uh, 1960s protests, as we've just discussed, focus on supporting um, Southern civil rights sit-ins and the integrating of local um, public accommodations in Kent. Um, and there were even some um, Kent State students that had gone south. There was one um, who joined a group known as the Freedom Riders in 1961, and there were other um, students that went and participated in the Selma March or the... Um, the 19, um, I think it was in 1965, the or 66 um, march that was known as the Meredith March or the uh, March Against Fear in Mississippi. Um, but by 64 and 65, of course, the, the war is beginning to um, to heat up um, at Kent State. In the spring of 1964, one of the first protests in Ohio occurred. It was a very small. Uh, uh, picket, really. Um, more, it was more of a picket than um, than a protest, but um, it, it still in all marked one of the first protests against the Vietnam War in the state. Uh, and then by 19, um, February of 1965, um, in response to an attack on an American base in South Vietnam, President Lyndon Johnson, who um, had become president after the assassination of John F. Kennedy, um, in November of 1963, in 1965, um, Johnson, who had been newly reelected, um, decides to um, punish um, North Vietnam for um, having um, launched this assault on this American base and unleashes um, a series of um, bombings on North Vietnam that um, continued um, almost unabated for the next um, three years or so, up until 1968. And that produced another small protest at, at Kent State. Um, there were, you earlier um, remarked on um, 
what some would consider the bravery or, or courage or, um, of, the, of the students at Kent State um, who were protesters. Well, these um, six or seven students required all of that because they were confronted by 200 angry counter-protesters. And that would have been uh, enough to discourage most people, but it didn't discourage any of them. They were all members of a group called the Young Socialist Alliance, um, which, um, not to get too deep into the weeds here, but they, they was a student arm of another group called the Socialist Workers Party that were Trotskyists in their um, orientation, so-called so because of their um, belief in the theories of um, the former Bolshevik um, Leon Trotsky. Uh, so they were not the kind of people to be e easily discouraged, even when um, they were being threatened and having things thrown at them. And indeed, one um, young woman whose um, photograph is in the book um, was actually kicked in the head um, during the demonstration. And I re remember um, interviewing her about that many years later. She just kind of brushed it off and had the attitude that they weren't going to allow something like that to discourage them. Um, and indeed, they did not. Um, so um, I'd like to say, too, that the, um, that the working class and democratic um, character of many of the students at Kent State in some ways helped to further the growth of protest there. But when it came to the Vietnam War, um, initially, I think it inhibited it, because if most of the students from these urban industrialized areas are Democrats, and um, their families and their parents would have supported Lyndon Johnson for the presidency, and Johnson was supportive, uh, um, uh, and indeed had signed into law um, many uh, very uh, progressive um, and indeed path-breaking um, um, laws or, or um, pieces of legislation such as the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 65, Medicare and Medicaid, um, and later uh, open housing in 1968, um, they were very hesitant uh, to break with President Johnson over the war. So many of them initially supported um, these counter-protests. And it was students that came from these old left families, or maybe their um, father had been a Henry Wallace progressive, or maybe their uncle had fought in Spain and had been involved in the Socialist Party. Um, these were the kind of um, young people that were um, active in the anti-war movement at the beginning. Um, so the uh, anti-war movement grew steadily at Kent State, but also very slowly because of this complicated um, political environment that um, that was um, that was the case at Kent State. You uh, connect the evolution of the protest to that election in 1964, because as you describe, a lot of these students were very passionate in their support for Johnson or their opposition to Barry Goldwater, who was seen as this warmonger. And it seems that the that the mental shift necessary to go from viewing Johnson as the sane, more uh, Pacific choice to Johnson as uh, you know the, the the kid killer, if you will, going back to the slogan, it, it, it takes them a while to do this. And in part, it, it, it's because in 1965, Vietnam doesn't seem like it's necessarily going to become what it is by 1968, of course. Right. And one of the things that began to, um, I think there were two things uh, in particular that began to, 
cause um, students at Kent State to shift their thinking. One was the cost of the war itself. Um, because these kids are coming from um, working class backgrounds, and of course there's a well-known book that some of, some listeners and readers will, um, will recognize and perhaps re- have read um, called Working Class War by um, Christian Oppie. Um, we know that the war was largely fought by um, people from the working class. And it wasn't um, that uncommon for um, students to have um, an older brother, you know, that was fighting in, in the war or a neighbor or a cousin, um, nor was it, um, unfortunately, um, all that unusual for someone to be killed over there who um, was a brother or a cousin or a friend or a neighbor. Um, and that, of course, really brought home the cost of the war. The other thing was that by 1968, with the um, um, presidential election that featured three candidates, Lyndon, um, well, initially Lyndon Johnson, then he dropped out, and um, Hubert Humphrey and um, Bobby Kennedy and and Gene McCarthy were all vying for the Democratic nomination. Richard Nixon um, pretty had a fairly clear path to the Republican nomination, but then the... um, um, the, the, the political scene was also um, complicated by the intri- entry of um, George Wallace, um, the former governor of Alabama, um, as an independent candidate um, for the presidency. So um, all of this, um, I don't want to get too deeply into um, this because a lot of readers, of course, are going to know what um, transpired in that um, year. But um, some readers may, uh, listeners may have forgotten that um, in August of 1968, when the Democrats were um, determining who their um, presidential um, aspirant was going to be, um, that being Vice President Hubert Humphrey, there were um, a series of very um, confrontational protests in Chicago. And on nationwide television, um, hundreds and hundreds of students were beaten um, by Chicago police. I think there was the Kerner report that later deemed it a police riot. And um, that was um, seen by millions and millions of young people and, and, um, and tens of millions of older Americans who drew sharply different conclusions from what they were watching on television. Um, the students saw it as um, unnecessary and, and brutal repression, uh, whereas older people saw it as like m- mindless um, um, violence that indicated that the country was um, desperately in need of someone to uh, bring some um, order out of all of this chaos. And as you described, uh, among the students protesting in Chicago in August 1968, there were more than just a few from Kent State itself. Yes, um, there were um, groups of students that had already organized themselves into an embryonic SDS chapter. I believe the chapter was founded in February of that year. And um, those that were from the Akron area organized people in, in that city because, of course, this is occurring over the summertime when um, when they're not in school. And the um, students um, that were from Cleveland, they were doing the same thing, um, um, sometimes in conjunction with the Cleveland Peace Council, to send um, students from those two cities who had been um, Kent students 
to the protest. And all of the um, leaders of the Kent State, or virtually all of the leaders of the Kent State um, Students for Democratic Society, SDS, participated in those protests. And um, certainly it contributed to them developing more of a um, radical edge um, than they already possessed. Of course, Nixon wins that election, and when he takes office, he introduces changes that uh, that tri- that change the dynamic between students in general and the war itself. And I was wondering if you could describe how Nixon's election changed the uh, protest culture at Kent State prior to 1970. Again, is an interesting dynamic, and it shows how sometimes the um, present can help to inform the past. Um, and we all know that the past can also inform the present. Uh, some um, listeners will recall that when um, Barack Obama was elected, he inherited two wars, um, and he had been um, an opponent, certainly, of the Iraq War. Um, But for a a period of time, he did not withdraw American um, forces from either Afghanistan or Iraq. And indeed, uh, American forces remain in Afghanistan. But generally, there weren't um, many protests that um, that occurred uh, about his um, uh, war policies from a constituency that had just elected him. And as I said earlier, I think that same dynamic was in play at Kent State between 1965 and 1968. But once Richard Nixon became the president, um, Kent students, many of whom, again, came from Democratic families, no longer felt inhibited um, by their partisan politics. And it was easier for them to shift um, into a opposition mode, because now the war was a Republican war instead of one that had been, um, that was being waged by a Democratic president. So I think that that was something that was very significant in terms of helping to transform the anti-war movement at Kent State. But so was the um, presence of a confrontational local chapter of the Kent Students for Democratic Society um, that, as we just discussed, was a um, in many ways, an outgrowth of the Chicago protest. And um, SDS, um, they formed um, an ephemeral alliance with the Black United Students at the university in 1968. And that led to a um, very successful protest in the in the fall of 68, only about a week or two after the presidential election, um, where um, students from the Black United um undergraduates from the Black United students, as well as um, SDS, blocked the Oakland police from recruiting at Kent State University. Um, The Oakland police had been responsible for a shooting in which Black Panther Party leader Eldridge Cleaver was uh, badly wounded, and a young 17-year-old by the name of Bobby Hutton had been killed. So um, that showed, um, once again, that students could be um, successful in their um, in their protest, and like some of the protests at the dawn of the decade, had also been successful. What that served to do was to further embolden um, the students. And in the spring of 1969, when SDS launched what they called its their spring offensive, which was aimed at um, four university programs, but the best known of which was the Reserve Officer Training um, Program. Um, 
program of the Army, um, of the United States Army. Uh, they quickly ran into a brick wall that the university had put up. And um, uh, at a confrontation in early April of 1969, that resulted in the uh, arrest and suspensions of six um, students. Um, and within a week or two, there was a... Um, a um, an effort to have students go in to observe some of these um, hearings that had been um, called to deal with the suspension of the students. That resulted in another 50 or 60 arrests. Um, in the meantime, the university had banned the SDS chapter. It was one of only six chapters in the entire country to be permanently banned from a university campus. In that same month, um, the federal government, the United States Congress, announced that they were going to be investigating the Kent State. Um, um, university um, SDS, and that that investigation would take place by the U.S. House of Inter uh, the U.S. House of Representatives Internal Security Committee, uh, once known as the um, House on Un-American Activities. So, um, what SDS had done is they helped create a um, a small core. And I say small, maybe 250, 300 students on the campus that were. Um, very dedicated to what they were doing, and that um, that's a fairly substantial group of people to be carrying on daily protests. But on the other hand, um, the attitude of SDS became so strident and, and the, um, the views of many so dogmatic that they... Um, had alienated themselves at the same time from other people who might have otherwise been sympathetic to them. But the university chose methods of, um, if one might say, repression um, aimed at the, um, at the students um, who were in SDS that also turned off large numbers of Kent State students. And indeed, um, about 5,000 Kent State University students came out to protest against what the university was doing. And while that did not um, cause the university to back off in any way, it did help to deepen the divide between a growing um, progressive and anti-war um, community um, or civil libertarian community and um, the university administration. One might say that it, it, it caused almost um, a permanent estrangement um, between the two. And I think that that also helped to fuel the fury of the protest in 1970. There's one of the group that you talk about that I must confess in my previous exposure to Kent State, I uh, had not really heard much about. And, and that is that by 1969, you you start to see veterans returning from Vietnam who are enrolling in Kent State, and they're beginning to some of them are beginning to participate in these protests and lend their firsthand uh, experience with with the war to the criticism of it. Right. Well. Um Veterans had always been part of the protest movement at Kent State from um, um, probably the, the mid-1950s when men were coming home from, um, from Korea. Um, so some of them were involved in this group, the Macedonians, for instance. And there were other veterans who participated in some of the civil rights um, protests and, um, and, and certainly in the early protests against the war in Vietnam. Uh, but it wasn't until the late 1960s that um, 
veterans of Vietnam came home to protest a war in which they had just fought. Uh, and indeed, as of May 4th, 1970, um, there were probably about one out of every 10 male students at Kent State was either um, in the Army Reserves or they had served in Vietnam or maybe had seen duty in Germany or someplace like that, but they were um, they were veterans um, or or still in some um, respects um, still active duty soldiers while they were going to school. So um, it um, it it definitely um, caused um, after the uh, the shootings. Well, let me say this too about the uh, growth of the Vietnam veterans against the war. 1970 marked um, a period of, of time when there was explosive growth in um, the Vietnam Veterans Against the War, VVAW for short, um, not only in Ohio, but throughout the country. And the first chapter of the Vietnam Veterans um, Against the War at Kent State was organized in the fall of 1970, after the shootings. Uh, and eventually, um, they rose to leadership positions um, in the anti-war movement at Kent State, um, especially by 1972. So this is important because so many um, people, um, even today, um, tend to view the student protest as having been against the soldiers. Um, but in point in fact, um, veterans were becoming increasingly part of the um, very protest movement that some people, even to this day, misunderstand. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could uh, take us now to the events of May 1970. And as you described, it wasn't just about what happened on May 4th, that you have the revelation about, uh, you have the announcement by the Nixon administration that they are sending troops into Cambodia, uh, the invasion of Cambodia by the U.S. and South Vietnam, and how this begins a series of protests that extend over several days, of which May 4th is a later act of them. Yes. Um, first, l let me let me say um, as well that because um, you had asked earlier about um, Richard Nixon and how his policies um, caused um, or how his election um, caused the change in the anti-war movement. He he did campaign as a candidate that had a secret plan to end the Vietnam War and. Well, that was uh, hi highly uh, d debatable um, and, and indeed d dubious notion, um, <laughs> given how he, um, in many respects, escalated the, the, the fighting in Vietnam throughout 1969, and then with um, the announcement that American forces were invading Cambodia in 1970, in April of 1970. At the same time, his um, his policies did show that that there was. Um, um, some indication that the war in Vietnam was winding down. He had already started to withdraw um, um, some American forces from Vietnam and to um, increase the, um, or to, to supplant them with um, 
uh, South Vietnamese soldiers, a process that was known as Vietnamization. In other words, replacing departing American troops with a buildup of the South Vietnamese Army. He had also instituted a draft lottery in December of 1969, where um, every um, male, American male of um, uh, military age, uh, that is those who, um, between the age of 18 and 26, were assigned um, a lottery number by their birthday. So those who had low lottery numbers, below, um, say, 200, um, still had a draft deferment as long as they remained a student. But if they were to leave school or to uh, fail um, and um, be put out of the university for um, for poor grades, then they would become subject to the military draft. Those who had uh, draft numbers above 200 were largely safe from that process because they were, um, the military announced that they were only going to be drafting people with a number of up to about um, 200. You, so you, you described this one. You described this one uh, anecdote in there about how uh, one of the people you interviewed his. Uh, roommate received a number that was like 360 and practically the next day he dropped out of the college yeah he threw himself a party that that night as i as i recall that um part, uh, part of the book and and then left school um um, another friend of mine recalled that his roommates um, all had jobs on the railroad, and they were going. To, they were taking enough classes at Kent State to maintain um, um, their um, 2S student status. And they all left school um, because they felt they didn't need to go to college any longer. They already had a good-paying full-time job on the railroad. And, and uh, with the with the with the high draft uh, with the high lottery number, that was basically removed the main justification for 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 so many of them. Right. But conversely, if one had a lower draft number, it was all the more reason to oppose the Vietnam War because um, students in that situation were still threatened. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, this is all occurring in the, in the spring of 1970 as well. And uh, as were um, deaths in Vietnam, um, in my own um, friendship circle, um, I had a girlfriend at the time whose brother had been killed in Vietnam. My um, roommate's brother um, died in Vietnam on April um, 13th, 1970, and we were all at, at his funeral only days before the announcement um, by President Nixon that um, American forces were uh, being sent into Cambodia. And indeed, my um, roommate's um, brother um, had been killed um, on the, or near the Cambodian border when he was um, run over by um, an American take by mistake. So um, there was a reason for um, the, the flow of the um, anti-Vietnam um, protest movement to continue, but there were also some ebbs in that movement. Um, some of the national organizations um, that had been committed to um, um, holding these um, nationwide um, protests against the Vietnam War didn't feel that there um, there was enough support to keep their organizations going, um, like the Vietnam Moratorium Committee that announced that they were closing down their operations in April of that year. Um, but the announcement by President Nixon on um, April um, 30th, 1970, that American and South Vietnamese forces were entering Cambodia changed all that. There was just an explosion of fury on many um, college campuses. Um, Kent State was um, both the rural 
rule and the exception initially. The, the initial um, protest the following day on um, May, May 1st, 1970, could, could by no means be described as, um, as an explosion of fury. Um, there were two of them. Um, there were two protests. One dealt more with racial issues. Another dealt um, explicitly with the war in Vietnam. But both of them were peaceful. And um, they each attracted about 300 or so um, demonstrators. But at the one um, that occurred um, on the Commons area, which is a vast expanse, um, or a, I shouldn't say vast, but a large expanse of land right in the center of the Kent State Camp, what used to be the center of the Kent State campus, um, the, the students there, before the protest um, broke up, um, many of them were milling around saying, we'll see you downtown tonight. Um, and someone had put up um, a, sun, a tree um, that was near um, where this protest occurred uh, that asked, why is ROTC, the Reserve Officer Training Corps um, of the United States Army, why is that building still standing? Um, kind of a provo provocative question, you might say. So um, that, that evening, um, late in the evening, on um, Friday, May the 1st, um, a number of students went on a rampage in downtown Kent and proceeded to break out windows of a number of um, downtown merchants. And this was their way of um, um, releasing some of the fury that they felt about, the, about what had happened in Cambodia and the expansion of the war. Um, that was enough to um, unnerve the mayor of Kent, who contacted um, the outgoing governor, James Rhodes, um, that he might need the National Guard to be sent um, to Kent. And the National Guard had already been mobilized um, at that point in Ohio because of a month-long Wildcat Teamster strike, where some of the Teamsters had been using um, their guns to force um, non-compliant drivers off the road. Um, and there were thousands of National Guardsmen that were already on duty. So um, when the protest um, reoccurred on Saturday evening, Governor Rhodes sent the National Guard into Kent. And by the time that they arrived, the ROTC building that I mentioned earlier had already been set aflame by dozens of student militants that were supported by at least several thousand anti-war protesters that had um, marched around the campus. And that's when the first confrontation between the Ohio National Guard and the anti-war students occurred. Uh, the following um, night, um, Sunday evening, um, and for these events, I was not an eyewitness to them. Um, but the confrontation, if anything, became uglier because um, students were tear-gassed when they tried to block an, an intersection in downtown Kent. Um, the National Guard went at them with bayonets, and four or five students, and as well as a, um, a non-student um, passing motorist, um, an older man actually, were, um, were, were cut or stabbed by National Guard bayonets. Um, unfortunately, none of these wounds were lethal, but it was um, um, an even more dangerous reminder of um, just how um, ugly and dangerous the confrontation was, was getting. So by uh, Monday, May the 4th, um, we're now into the um, fourth day of protest. Uh, students who 
on May 1st had held this initial protest on the commons area were told to reassemble on May 4th to continue their protest against the Cambodian invasion, not knowing, of course, on May 1st that uh, any of these um, later protests were going to occur or that the National Guard would be sent onto their campus. So by noontime on May the 4th, the character of the protest had really changed. While uh, Cambodia had receded, the issue of Cambodia had receded some into the background, and now it was the presence um, in the town of Kent and on the campus of Kent State of um, over 1,200 guardsmen that was the real issue. And Kent was often referred to as a suitcase college and where many of the students go home to their neighboring communities over the weekend so they certainly would have been mindful and aware of the if they had not part, if they'd been away from campus while this was going on that these things were taking place of course it was uh, a huge story in northeast ohio but um, hearing about them and seeing it on television is one thing arriving back in town and finding national guardsmen in front of your dorms and armored personnel carriers uh, being stationed at several the intersections in town was a very jarring experience. And for the white students, something they had never seen before. Um, The African-American students were more familiar with this because they had already experienced um, uh, National Guard um, occupation of their communities in the late 1960s in Akron and in Cleveland. But for white students, it was something that most of them had never seen before. So the stage was really set for um, a, a confrontation on Monday, May 4th, 1970. You describe an element that of which they would have been totally unaware, which is the degree to which several members of the Guard were making a point of arming themselves with guns, not just the uh, M1 rifles that the uh, soldiers had, or in some cases M14s, but you describe how one officer uh, had a twenty two pistol uh uh, because he felt that his baton would be insufficient, uh, he, that there was a, a, a real sense among many uh, people within the Guard that there was a desire for payback after having uh, experienced two days of insults and having had uh, rocks thrown at them, that there was a, 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 a hunger for some sort of, of, of decisive confrontation. Yes, the group that was stoned on Saturday night when they first drove into town was the 107th Armored Cavalry. And that unit um, contained um, the largest, there were three um, members of three companies that were involved in the fatal shootings. But it was that same unit that it was determined uh, had the largest number of enlisted men who had opened fire on the students. And yet the students themselves would not have known that there would be an escalation beyond what they already experienced. As bad as the bayoneting, the tear gassing was, there had yet to be any sort of discharge of firearms on the part of the guard. Right, but it was it was an uh, it was an ugly environment. Um, uh, to give like one example, um, the student who's on the cover of the book, Alan Cantora. He, um, the, the day before, he had been driving around um, Kent with a Vietnam um, veteran friend of his, um, and a guardsman had, like, you know, put a, um, a, a bayonet on the, on the um, end of his rifle into a, the open car window, you know, as a measure of intimidation. Um, and then on May 4th, 1970, he was carrying um, 
two um, protest flags from his off-campus um, apartment up to the rally, and a guardsman um, accosted him um, en route to the um, rally, and he said something to the effect, um, you know, what you got there, boy? And um, Ken Foro, who's ordinarily kind of a combative um, person, but he didn't want to, um, you know, renew the tension, initially responded um, um, by simply saying, oh, I've just got just a couple of protest flags. And then the guardsman said, well, we're going to make you eat those flags today. And then at, at that Ken Fora got his um, <clears throat> dander up and he said something, you know, to the effect, well, if you get too close, I'm going to shove them down your throat. Um, so that kind of, in, in, in microcosm, that that showed the, um, or revealed the, the kind of tension that existed between the students and, and the National Guard. In terms of their armament, they did uh, possess about four or five kinds of military weaponry, um, the most dangerous of which, of course, was the um, was the M1 that, that can kill at um, distances of up to a mile, steel-jacketed um, ammunition that's powerful enough, as I understand it, to actually go through an engine block. And there's a steel um, um, sculpture on the university campus that was actually right between the guardsmen and the students that they fired upon, and that took a uh, an M1 bullet went through that, and it just blew right through the statue. Um, but so that was the most most lethal weapon that was used. But they also had 45s, um, two types of um, shotguns. One um, um, officer uh, brought an AR-15 to the rally, um, and there were um, several private handguns. They were, they were not supposed to carry those um, onto the um, campus. Um, or, or use them in the course of the duty of their duty, but some of these guardsmen were also policemen, so they were accustomed to carrying, you know, private weapons. And indeed, one of them um, was accustomed to carrying what they call a throwdown. So, in the event that um, a, a policeman uh, would shoot an unarmed person, but later wanted to make the argument that that person was armed, and that all they would need to do is take the weapon that they had and put that down next to the body, and then that's where the justification would come from. And indeed, one of the um, guard commanders um, did that very thing on the body of Jeff Miller, who is in the um, best-known photograph that was taken of Kent State, in fact, one that won the Pulitzer Prize, um, where the young woman is kneeling over the body of the slain student. He, um, a National Guard um, captain, said that he found a, um, a handgun on Jeff Miller's body, which wasn't true, and he later had to admit under oath that it was not. So describe the events of May 4th, the, the, how the shooting took place, what were the circumstances, and what was the uh, what happened in the aftermath? Well, well the, the initial protest occurred, on, again, in this area known as the Commons. And on one edge of the Commons had stood the ROTC building that by then was... Um, was just in ruins. It was, a, it was a total loss. It was a wooden structure, an old military-style barracks that had been used to house um, soldiers during World War II. It had been um, disassembled and then reassembled on Kent State University campus um, in sometime in the 1950s, and that was the headquarters of, um, of ROTC. It probably would have been torn down eventually anyway, but it w- the, the contents of the building were probably worth $50,000, not an inconsiderable sum of money, and 
that had been destroyed in the fire on May the 2nd. So the guard um, unit, about approximately 105 guardsmen, were um, standing um, on a picket line or a skirmish line in front of that building. On the other side of this um, expanse of open land known as the Commons, um, stood gathered between 500 and and 1,000 protesters, of of which maybe 300 of which were truly active and boisterous, the rest of whom were standing nearby in in kind of a sympathetic pose. And then there were another probably two to 3,000 students that were onlookers at at various other um, places in the vicinity. And the... um, National Guard um, had somewhat misunderstood what um, the governor had maintained. And by the way, he held a very bellicose um, news conference on May the 3rd, where he said that the um, students at Kent State were the worst type of people. This is an exact quote. "Were Were the worst type of people that we harbor in America, worse than the brown shirts and the communist element and the night riders. Um, so, um, and, he, and he also um, indicated that if it took um, shooting to, to put a stop to it, that um, that wasn't off the table. And in fact, the word that he used um, about the st- um, student protest at Kent State was that he was going to eradicate it, quote unquote. So, um, this, of course, contributes to this charged environment. And around noontime, um, the National Guard. Um, dispatched a a jeep that had a campus policeman in it um, and several guardsmen, and they drove out um, a short distance to where the students were assembled, and the campus policeman, whose name was Harold Rice, was using a a bullhorn, rather, to amplify his voice, and he was pleading with the students to leave. He was saying, all of you innocent people, go to your homes, leave this area immediately. Um, This is an illegal assembly. And I think that he meant well. I came to know Harold Rice in in the years afterwards, and um, he he was a good man. Um, But at that moment, all it did was to further inflame the students, and it was very apparent that the students were not going to leave. The attitude was that this was their campus. If anyone ought to leave, it's the National Guard and not the students. And they felt that they, uh, because at that point it was a peaceful assembly, that they, um, that there was no reason why they should adhere to this order um, to depart from this um, area of the campus. So the Jeep then, oh, and I think there was either a rock, it was a rock that was thrown at the Jeep, but I think it bounced off the tire. It didn't hit anyone, but that was a further indication that the students were not going to heed this order that was being given to them by this campus policeman with the authority of the Ohio National Guard backing him up. So the Jeep drove back to the National Guard lines, and and the guardsmen were ordered to lock and load by their general, um, whose name was um, Robert Canterbury, I believe was the first name, Canterbury, definitely the last name. And um, then he ordered um, um, the grenadiers um, among the guardsmen to load their tear gas. There was a faculty member who approached the general, and he pleaded with him not to advance on the students. And the general um, told the the professor that these students are going to have to find out what law and order is all about. And um, within a a, a very uh, 
short period of time, seconds or minutes later, the tear gas was fired in, into the students, which dispersed um, them in all, all different directions, the majority of which retreated up a hill that was right behind um, one side of this um, expansive land um, or expansive um, landscape uh, known as the commons, and they had to retreat up a, a very steep hill um, past um, an architectural building known as um, Taylor Hall, and, and then down the uh, more gradual decline on the other side. And what the National Guard were um, attempting to do was to um, it, go after the students and then block off um, their ability to um, regather on the commons. So in, in effect, disperse the protest and then prevent the students from recongregating on the um, on commons where the protest had originated. Uh, and had they remained at the very top of the, this hill that I just mentioned, they would have succeeded in doing so. Um, and the guard units had to break into two groups because of the this large building that dominates the hillside, this Taylor Hall architecture building. And one group of guardsmen stayed on the left side of it, and the other group was supposed to stay on the right side of it. But for reasons that were never fully explained, the general, Robert Canterbury, he took his men down the hill, hillside um, after the students, and when he um, got down um, to the bottom of this hill on a practice football, field, he found that this group of 75 guardsmen were confronting um, a chain-link fence on one side with an asymmetrical crowd of students on the other three sides. Um, so they placed themselves um, tactically in, in a poor situation. And there was a major by the name of um, Harry Jones, who had been with this other group that had stayed on the, on the hillside where they were supposed to, he walked right through all these student protesters unharmed down to where this group of 75 guardsmen being led by a general and a lieutenant colonel were congregated and in effect said to them, this is not an exact quote, but what are you doing down here? You've placed yourselves in, in a bad situation. You need to go back up to the top of the hill where um, you were supposed to be. So you had the unusual situation of a major bringing tactical clarity to um, several commanding officers. Um, but what some people also believe happened while um, while this discussion was taking place is you have um, students that are continuing to throw rocks at the guardsmen, the guardsmen throwing rocks, some guardsmen throwing rocks back at the students, and then some guardsmen for the first time that day taking um, a kneeling position and aiming their rifles at at least one of the students, uh, this um, young man by the name of Alan Canforo, whose picture is on the cover of the book. Um, and indeed, it's this um, picture that I'm describing, um, and that was the first time, uh, or no, the second time that day that they had actually um, leveled their rifles in a, in a, in a very menacing um, pose. They had done so w once earlier on the other side of the um, architecture building, Taylor Hall, uh, when they were first dispersing the protest. So some some people believe that the guardsmen, that some of the guardsmen at that point determined that um, if they felt that their lives were in any way in danger when they reached the top of the hill that they were going to let loose on the students. So they formed themselves into a V formation with some guardsmen watching the rear and conducted this retrograde movement um, 
from the practice football field back um, up towards the top of the hill that they had just come come over, and the students thought that they were going to um, um, retreat back down to the commons. So the students were um, yelling and and screaming at them. It was incredibly loud. Um, It was very hard to hear anything. And um, there was no tear gas that was being fired at this point, although the guardsmen did retain a few tear gas rounds, and there was some rock throwing that was still going on. And when the guardsmen reached the very apex of this hill, um, an area that is marked by a, um, a, um, an architectural um, um, item that was put up by some um, architectural students um, that is called, it's kind of misnamed as a pagoda. It's really almost like a, an umbrella-shaped st- um, structure. They, they suddenly um, executed a 130-degree turn. And you can, uh, um, on the audio tape of the shootings, you can hear unmistakably two loud shots, and they came from M1 rifles. And the M1 rifle is a very, very loud weapon. It's uh, unmistakable. And um, as soon as the students heard that, they um, proceeded to start running, and then uh, um, it was followed by another 12-second uh, fuselage um, of, of firing um, that, that brought down um, 13 seconds in our uh, 13 students in 13 seconds. So you have the a closest student, well, The closest student was about 60 feet away, and the furthest student was over 400 feet away. So you have the situation where you have students on the ground bleeding, uh, some of them dying, not all of whom were involved in the protest, as you described. Uh, some of them were simply walking across campus when they were shot. And you have a situation of great chaos where afterward you you have people that are being rushed to the hospital. You also describe how the guard then uh, withdraws and they begin to assess what had just happened on their side. Right. Um, one of the, um, the, the unit of um, guardsmen, um, it was Company C of the 145th Infantry, that was um, captained um, and commanded by a man by the name of um, James Ronald Snyder. And he was a Portage County detective. Um, he went. To, he took some of his men down into the parking lot where they saw um, at least two of the students um, that had been um, slain, including this um, student by the name of Jeff Miller, whose, um, whose slain body is pictured in the famous photograph that was taken that day. And he um, said that he found a gun on on Miller's body. He later had to recant that. But um, by that point, the the fury of the students was almost like unrestrained, and they were screaming at at the guards when you effing murderers and, you know, get the hell out of here. And um, they did discharge um, another tear gas canister down there. Um, I think a student got it wound up with a cut lip from it somehow, and they bid um, a hasty retreat. so the guardsmen had um, the other unit of guardsmen um, that had done the firing. They continued their retrograde retrograde movement over the hill, back down the steep side of it uh, onto the commons. And then the students, incredibly enough, um, those who had not been um, um, killed or in- injured, or who were busy um, aiding the students who had been. Um, they also followed the guardsmen and went back down onto the commons and sat there in a compact mass and refused to leave. And this is where um, 
something, I mean, as, as horrific as uh, the events already were, um, this could have trans, um, how should I say this? It could have, um, caused Kent State to go from, um, about a dozen casualties, um, into scores of casualties. It could have been on the scale of, say, Sharp, the Sharpeville massacre in South Africa in 1960, where, you know, several score, um, people were killed because the students refused to leave the spot where they had congregated. And there were several hundred of them that sat down. And the guardsmen surrounded the students and they said that they had five minutes and then they were going to open fire into this compact mass. And, um, a geology professor <clears throat> who was well known and highly regarded by the students. Um, he, he, he looked like a, um, <clears throat> a former army or Marine, um, um, Corps, um, officer or, um, soldier. And I, in fact, I believe he did serve in the military. Um, you know, crew cut and, um, kind of sharp chiseled features. He, he broke down. He was, he was pleading with the students. He says, if you've never listened to anybody before in your lives, you've got to, you've got to leave. I, I don't want you to die in this place. And, um, the kind of authority that he carried with the students and the impassioned tone that he took with them was enough to finally get the students to get up and to be, uh, begin dispersing to, to avert um, a, a wider slaughter of which there almost certainly would have been. Um, because um, the guard gave every indication, and they've never given any indications uh, since, that they wouldn't have opened fire a second time. In the meantime, on the um, other side of the commons, I mean, the other side of this hillside um, where the shootings occurred, you've got complete chaos, um, you know, um, students being um, carried by fellow students into dormitories. Um, um, there's a famous picture on the cover of Life magazine of a student by the name of uh, Joe Cullum taking, um, you know, clothing articles off and stuffing them into the um, chest cavity of another student by the name of John Cleary who'd, um, to try to stem the blood, blood loss. Um, you know, students being loaded into ambulances. Some of them um, um, were able to hail rides from, you know, private vehicles and be transported that way to the um, to the hospital. Um, but it was um, it was a very very um, chaotic and hor horrific scene. Um, but, um, and it was made more so because while it was a um, confrontation, in in some ways you had. Um, um, a group of um, unarmed student combatants facing armed um, National Guard combatants, um, it's important to realize that while the Guard were heavily outnumbered, there were about 100 Guardsmen um, that had dispersed um, at least a 1,000 students, that while they were heavily outnumbered, that the students were entirely outgunned. So what happened in the aftermath of that day? How did the... Uh, how did government officials respond, uh, what happened to uh, the, the the students who survived, what happened to uh, the Guard members? Well, um, the, the school was closed that day, and it remained closed until the graduation ceremonies in June of 1970. And uh, really didn't, um, they did have summer classes, not, they weren't that well attended, so you really didn't have um, the, a true reopening of the school until late September of 1970. Um, 
which denied um, Kent State students the opportunity to have any kind of a memorial service on their campus. I mean, memorial services occurred um, on campuses throughout the rest of the United States, but not at Kent State. Uh, Kent State, uh, um, along with Cambodia, and then later the, the shootings at Jackson um, State College in Jackson, Mississippi, all of that produced a student strike across the United States um, that was the, um, the largest in American history, somewhere in the neighborhood of three to four million um, um, students participated in it. And it really did shake the very foundations of um, higher education in the United States um, and also produced an emergency protest in Washington um, in a six-day period of time. Um, some of the remaining national anti-war organizations were able to organize um, a huge protest in Washington that drew 100,000 people on, um, you know, a few short days' notice. So the, the country was really in turmoil. Um, there were members of the Nixon administration that were resigning, um, um, uh, angry words being, being um, um, ex exchanged at every, every level of American society. Um, and in terms of the National Guard, um, they were made to order because they had discharged their weapons. They had to file action after action reports that day. And within a few days, um, there were dozens of F FBI agents in town investigating both the burning of the ROTC building and the discharge of fatal shots by the Ohio National Guard. There was an additional investigation by the Ohio Highway Patrol in June of 1970. And um, the uproar was such in the United States that President Nixon felt it necessary to convene a presidential panel to look into the causes of student unrest, and that was chaired by um, the governor or former governor of um, Pennsylvania by the name of William Scranton. He was a moderate to liberal Republican, and the commission took his name and became known as the Scranton Commission. And that commission found, I don't recall the exact quote, but it said something to the effect that um, the uh, discharge of um, shots by the Ohio National Guard was um, unexcusable and unnecessary. As you described, though, even after Kent State faded from the scene, you still have uh, a lot of the people involved dealing with the aftermath of it. Some of them were arrested and tried. Uh, the Guard was uh, members were sued in civil court, and and how that took years to to uh, resolve itself. Yes, the legal aftermath of Kent State did not occur until, uh, or did not end until January of 1979, when there was an out-of-court out of settlement um, for um, a civil damages suit that those who had been... Um, um, those who had been wounded at Kent State and the families of um, those four students that um, that were slain there had um, um, had initiated uh, against the Ohio National Guard, the governor of the then governor of the state, and in fact, in the 1970s, he was reelected, James Rhodes. He was the longest-serving governor in Ohio history, um, and also the president of the university, Robert I. White, who I talked about earlier. Um, one thing I would like to add here is that it remains the widespread um, belief 
of, um, of many, including a number of historians, that dissent, um, the 1960s dissent died in a small Ohio town on May 4th, 1970. And my book is um, a book that, um, while it places Kent State in both the local state, national, and indeed international context, at at the same time, it focuses the story rather tightly on Kent State. So I don't try to make grand claims about what was going on throughout the country at large um, after um, the the spring and summer of 1970. But at Kent State, um, what the um, fatal shootings produced was two or three more years of um, um, widespread activism, and that that activism at Kent State um, lasted as long as did the Vietnam War. You, 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 you had, you, there are pictures in your book that are showing how the protests continued into 1971-72. The students remained very engaged, so if it died somewhere else, it certainly thrived in Kent State. Right. And then, of course, they erupted again in the late 1970s when the university decided that they would build a gymnasium annex on a part of the um, on a part of the campus where the National Guard, excuse me, National Guard had maneuvered um, um, on May 4th, 1970. And the students um, and ex-students and non-students um, conducted a six-month campaign um, to prevent that that, that um, caused the largest mass arrest in the history of Kent State University. Um, so these protests were going on as late as um, October of 1977. Well, before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Well, I've actually uh, returned to what had been originally a concentration in the American Civil War. Uh, that course that I teach um, is a part-time uh, professor at, a, at the local community college. And I, um, I, can, I do articles for uh, popular um, format um, Civil War magazines and also um, scholarly journals such as the, um, the Register, which is the Journal of the Kentucky Historical Society on the American Civil War. Okay. Tom, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us today. I hope you have a wonderful day. Well, um, I appreciate very much this opportunity, Mark, and, um, and thank you for your very informed questions.